Well, let's go ahead and get started. Our, uh, we're looking at chapter four in our, our book. So hopefully everybody, I think I handed it out to everybody. Um, looking at baptism and the Lord's Supper. So these are the, the two ordinances of the church. So uh, starting on page 34 for our lesson today. It says at the top there, Baptism and the Lord's Supper, the two ordinances of the church, are precious parts of the Christian worship. Yet both are tragically misunderstood. It seems that every denomination has a different understanding of the purposes and meanings resulting in grave errors and unnecessary confusion. As with other topics, our desire is to discover and apply what the Bible teaches about these important activities. So, and then, you know, underneath there with the asterisk, it just tells us what we're talking about with the ordinances, uh, the two ordinances of the local church, because they were ordained by Christ as a memorial of his work on the cross. So we're we're talking about these two things, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So I don't know, I think probably for some of you guys, you grew up, maybe have grown up in the church, so you've just always known or heard about. Uh, for some of you, you may have not grown up in the church, or you know, you're new to the church, or you know, so we're trying to understand why do we do these things. So there's this, if we're saved by faith alone, uh, faith in Christ alone, why do we have to do, why do we do baptism? Why do we do have to do the Lord's Supper? Why do we do it the way we do? You know, I'm sure you guys, if we talked, you know, had a discussion about it, there, we could think of a couple different ways that uh, baptism is practiced, for instance. Who, who knows of one way or a different way, some different ways that baptism is or has heard of some different ways you've, or maybe been to a church where baptism was practiced a different way. Sprinkling the baby. Sprinkling, sprinkling, yeah. So there's sprinkling, and then, you know, uh, pedo baptism or child baptism. Uh, so there's that. And then we also have the Lord's Supper, you know, where some churches, for instance, Catholic churches, you're doing, uh, you're taking the communion every time you go. So if you go to a service, you're doing the communion every single time. Baptists, we are a Baptist in our orientation here, uh, so we do it uh, on a regular basis. Some churches do it more often, some do it less. Uh, why do we do it that way? You know, why is it? Why do we do it? How we do it? Why do we practice baptism the way we do? So we're going to try to flesh these things out here through this lesson. Can I ask a question at this point? If you get together with a minister from the Methodist Church and one from the Presbyterian Church. Do you ever sit down and just talk about it and discuss it and say, you have the wrong way or I have the right way or, or are you just tactful? Uh, I think it's one of those things you have to know. Everyone from the different views has like their, they know where they're coming from. So like, if you know each other pretty well, I, I think it goes better. But if you don't know each other, you probably just stay away from it because you're going to be pushing each other's buttons because you know you guys dunk each other, right? So, you know, or, uh, or you do the, you know, there are actually some Baptists that, that practice paedo baptism. You know, so there's some Baptist groups that actually do that. So, you know, you're going to talk about why. And it actually has come up in some of the circles. So some of the material you guys are probably reading online, some of the churches, some of the pastors, on the teachers who you may be listening to are actually believers of infant baptism. So they're going to come from a certain point of view and say, these are the merits of this, this is why it's important. Um, you know, so it, it, I think baptism is the one that gets more heated in discussions than the Lord's Supper. But 
I, I think generally people try to uh, they'll avoid the conversation in polite company because they know it's just going to be uh, it's a heated issue and th- so we'll understand try to understand why is it something that actually can be controversial or why is it something that we uh, will hit stumbling blocks when we try to discuss each other uh, the issue amongst each other so looking at part one he says here baptism the purpose of baptism why do we do it you know what is the point of doing that why do we do this baptism uh, so before we study what ba- baptism does accomplish it says uh, we want we want to understand what baptism does not accomplish so acts 16 31 through 34 i'll read that passage uh oh that's Actually, I'll just read the, the section that we're going to deal with, 33, 31 through 33. <clears throat> so Acts chapter 16, 31 through 33. They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the... So, you know, let me give some context here before I just jump into it. Using pronouns like they without context. So the scene we have is with Paul and the Philippian jailer. So we have Paul, Silas, Timothy, and they're in Philippi. And uh, so let me, so just to give some context, once we were, it says starting in verse 16, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we, that is Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. So they run into this woman. She predicts the future, makes a lot of money for the people who actually kind of control her. They cast the spirit out because she's kind of annoying her, annoying this group of guys. They get all upset because now they cost them, they're going to cost this money that they're making off this girl. So they get drawn, uh, brought up before the, the magistrates in the city who are start making this claim against them. These, So in verse 20, they say, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar, but advocating customs unlawful to us Romans to accept or to practice. So they they got the whole crowd riled up to attack these guys. <clears throat> so they beat, beat them. They beat these three guys. It says in 23, they were severely flogged and thrown into prison. And the jailers, jailers in the prison were commanded to guard them carefully. This is the prison probably a prison that was like an underground cave type situation. So it's not like a jail that we think of. It's probably like a whole, you know, like a, a cave that they throw these guys into, not much light, and they actually are chained to the guards. So, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a, such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So there's the kind of the crux statement of this section. What must I do to be saved? So they, that is Paul and Silas, reply, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, because remember they were beaten and thrown straight into jail. Then immediately he, that is the jailer, and all his household were baptized. And so that's what we're trying to understand. Uh, 
he believed, and then they were baptized. So the jailer's question in verse 30 is, what must I do to be saved? That first blank there. What was the jailer's question? He asked, what must I do to be saved? And so the answer Paul and Silas give them, give him in the next verse, is that he has to believe in the Lord Jesus. He doesn't say, believe in the Lord Jesus and do X, or believe in the Lord Jesus uh, and do some do this other stuff. He just says, believe in the Lord Jesus. So in chapter 1, we discussed, we learned that the word believe in the New Testament means place faith in someone. So Paul tells the jailer there's only one thing necessary, necessary for salvation, faith in Jesus Christ. So he's not telling them faith and baptism. So we're looking back, we go back to verses 32 and 33. When were the jailer and his family baptized? It says in 33, immediately... He and all his household were baptized immediately following their baptism. So the blank there, that's immediately after believing. So baptism does not save you. So if you, the point of the story, the point of what we're looking at here is that they didn't, it was not that they were baptized and now they're believers. They were believers and immediately they get baptized because that's what believers are supposed to do. So that's that point one. Baptism does not save you. Baptism does not wash away your sins there in that point two. So many believer, many people believe that baptism washes away their sin. But scripture teaches otherwise. According to 1 John 1, 7, only one thing is able to wash away sins, and that is the blood of Jesus. So the only thing, according to John, is that the blood of Jesus can wash away sins. You probably heard that song. Some of you may have heard that song. Remember, you are cleansed from your sins the moment, so that's important, the moment you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and you are baptized after that point. So there's a timing aspect, and that's what we saw with the Philippian jailer. By the time you were baptized, your sins have already been washed away. So that's the, that's an important point there. Your sins had already been washed away by the time you were baptized. So he says that point is extremely important. If baptism were able to wash away sin, then Jesus' death was unnecessary. So that's that's an important point. If we baptism is able to take care of sin, then Jesus' death was unnecessary. You are cleansed with the shed blood of Christ, not with water. So that's that's one of the important things we want to think about is that we when someone says that you have to be baptized or you, you know, a different, someone from another denomination would say that you need baptism in order to be a Christian, uh, then it, it actually devalues that sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. It devalues what he did, uh, what he accomplished. So we want to make sure we're clear on that. So number three, baptism does not earn you special favor with God. So some churches teach that baptism, it's a way of gaining uh, God's saving grace. However, grace, and we, we define grace as unmerited or undeserved kindness. So you can't earn grace. Right? We can't earn a gift if, because that, then it's not a gift, it's a wage. If baptism does not save you, cleanse you, or earn special favor with God, then why be baptized? And that's how we, come, we kind of started the lesson. Why do we, even, why do we bother being baptized? So the Bible lists at least three reasons. The first one is important. Baptism was commanded by Jesus Christ. So reason one, the reason that we are, uh, we actually observe baptism is because it was commanded. 
So the primary reason for being baptized is that Christ commanded it. Every Christian needs to be baptized in order to be obedient. And that's the key word, to be obedient to Christ. Uh, so can someone read Matthew 28, 19, and 20? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thank you. So, uh, after assuming that his hearers will go, that is, go, he says, go and then make disciples. What three commands did Christ give his disciples? So he tells them, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them. So he, he gives three commands, I think, uh, not to like get into like a grammar lesson, but the, it's not three separate commands. The command, there's one overarching command here, it's go and make disciples. The go is actually even subservient, so it's an attendant circumstance. So you actually are making disciples is the key command here in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. You make disciples, you do it by going, obviously. But the baptizing and teaching is the, is a, like an explanation. It is a participle. There are participles of means of how you actually make disciples. You baptize them and you teach them. So they're not like three separate commands. There's three commands given, but it's actually one, one major command with two that actually explain how the, the major, you know, the main thrust of the passage, how, to, how you make disciples is by baptism and teaching. Anyhow. That's, that's an extra. That's all bonus. So making disciples, baptizing, teaching as the three commands. So the order of the three commands is important. Notice that, the, that baptism immediately follows making disciples or salvation. Baptism is not part of salvation, but it should follow very closely. The first step, the very first step of obedience that a new Christian should take is baptism. So you can be a Christian, as it says in the box, without being baptized, but you will never be more than a disobedient Christian. And of course, there's exceptions. If someone gets saved, and then you know, you know, we talked about the, the thief on the cross situation. Uh, those are more exceptions in the rule. It's, we're talking about in the normal circumstances of life, you're saved, but you don't get baptized. Uh, at that point, you're you're living in disobedience because Christ says here in Matthew 28, uh, baptize, be baptized. You know, in order to be a disciple, you need to be baptized. Reason number two of why we are uh, why we go ahead and be baptized, why we should be baptized, is that it identifies you with Jesus Christ. That is, a, it's a symbol of spirit baptism. A symbol of spirit baptism. So the word baptized was used in the first century to describe the process by which cloth was dyed. When a white cloth is immersed in a dye, the, the cloth comes into the dye and the dye into the cloth, the two become one. Similarly, each person who has received Jesus Christ as Savior has been immersed into Christ. At the moment of salvation, he came into us and we came into him. That is, we are initiated initiated into the body of Christ. That's what spirit baptism represents. Or that's what we're talking about here. We're initiated into the body of Christ. <clears throat> water baptism is an outward symbol of an inward reality. So our, our immersion into water... Pictures our immersion into Christ. Uh, can someone read Galatians three twenty seven? 
For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So this is the this is you know the, one of the key verses that describes spiritual baptism, which is this became a reality the moment you were saved. So it says we were baptized into Christ and clothed with Christ, as we have taken on Christ. So water baptism follows spirit baptism and symbolizes. So then we have this kind of uh, two boxes here. Uh, comparing the two. Spirit baptism, a moment of salvation. It's positional. You are immersed into Christ, permanently joining into Him. It's an inward reality. That is water baptism, which takes place after salvation. Immersed into water as a picture of your union with Christ. And it's an outward symbol. An outward symbol. Outward symbol of the inward reality. So, Romans 6, 1 through 7, I'll read that. What should we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Absolutely not. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we may no longer be slaves of sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So, verses 3-5. through teaching us that when we are baptized into Christ, that is spirit baptism, we're actually identifying with them, we're taking part in his death, burial, and resurrection. So those are that's an important concept, and I'll touch on this here in this lesson a couple of times. We're taking part in his death, burial, and resurrection. We were spiritually dead and now been made alive. We've been made alive to a new life. It says in Romans 6, 4. So this truth is pictured by water baptism, by immersion. Uh, Being completely submerged in water pictures Christ's death and burial and our death to sin. Emerging from the water pictures Christ's resurrection and our new life. Just as Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, so every believer is dead to sin and alive to God. So if you've ever, you know, if you remember what baptisms look like here at Community, Ken kind of touches on that as he's uh, immersing the person. So reason number three, baptism is your testimony for Jesus Christ. Another important reason for you being baptized is that it's a testimony of salvation. It shows to others that you have trusted Christ as your Savior. Hence, baptism in the Bible was often a very public event. And this, so this is actually an important concept because this is um, in the world of that Christ lived in, in that first century and even a couple a uh, couple centuries before then, there were religious groups running around Rome, uh, running around Greece, these areas. And when you, and so baptism wasn't something unique to just uh, Christians. Jews before them practiced. There were other groups that practiced baptism. And baptism was a way of identifying yourself with this teacher, identifying yourself with this leader, identifying yourself with this group. And so... Just like in these groups, baptism was a, a way of identifying a public testimony of your, dedic- your uh, following of Jesus Christ. 
public identification with Christ. And so he gives this illustration here with this ring, uh, so a, a wedding ring. So a good illustration of baptism importance as testimony is a wedding ring. So why do people wear a wedding ring? So that's an obvious reason, right? So it tells everybody that you're married. It's a symbol that you're married. And does the wedding ring make people married? No. No. So it's not the actual ring that me- that makes a person married. So is it a po- is it possible to be married without wearing a ring? Mm-hmm. And is it possible to wear a ring without being married? Right. It makes me think of there's an episode of Seinfeld that. So a wedding ring is a symbol of marriage and baptism. Excuse me, and baptism is a symbol of salvation. Just as a wedding ring does not make someone married, baptism does not make someone a Christian. People wear wedding ring, ring, uh, rings to demonstrate to others that we have, they have already been married. Similarly, Christians are baptized to demonstrate to others that we have already been saved. Just as someone could wear a wedding ring without being married, many people have been baptized but never truly saved. Conversely, just as someone can be married without wearing a ring, someone can be saved without being baptized. Though the spouse would be displeased in both circumstances. So actually, when I was in seminary, one of the guys that was in the seminary, he was uh, probably mid-20s, mid to late-20s at the time, grew up as a pastor's son from Canada. And he was actually, so we actually support him, Jeremy Roy. He's one of our sem- our, our latest uh, um, missionaries that we support here. Grew up as a pastor's kid, was baptized as a teenager, and then realized in his mid-twenties that he actually was not a Christian, got, was saved, but then when we were in seminary, decided he wanted to be baptized. So he gets baptized at Inner City a few years ago because he realized the first time he was baptized, he was baptized, but he wasn't a Christian at that time, so he wanted to be baptized as a Christian. So he ended up, although it was a second baptism, it was his first as a, as a Christian. So it's possible that someone can be baptized uh, without being a Christian. Uh, typically this happens with kids, right? So a lot of times that's why some churches will have some kind of... Um, they're very careful about baptizing, baptizing small or young kids because they're not sure about that effect. It's a true confession of faith that they're making. And so we want to take it serious. So they, they kind of, uh, you know, they, they hold it back sometimes for young people who are too young. Those who are preparing to be baptized should take seriously the importance of what they are doing and pray about what they'll say. Often you will have the opportunity to describe how you came to know Christ as Savior. So you want to do it and pray for the Lord to use your testimony. Many people have come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior as a result of seeing a friend or family member baptized. Your act of obedience may become an opportunity to give the gospel to someone who needs Christ. So you know, you know, for those of you who've been here uh, for those baptisms that we have, that's that's exactly how we do it here. We have a, a public reading of the person's testimony. Sometimes it's the person, sometimes it's Pastor Ken that'll read the, the testimony, and then uh, you know the person will be baptized, and they'll have what they have on the table. They have bridge tracks because they know it's an opportunity that. There's a good chance that unbelievers will be there to witness this, and it's a good opportunity to uh, to to actually do a physical, you know, a, a picture of the gospel right there for the person. 
So any questions on the reasons why we do it? Any confusion, any pushback? So it's it's important to understand why we do it because it's not so we're, we're we do it for the right reasons, uh, but we can also understand why some people why we have problems with the way some people do it, also or don't do it. I have a question that yeah. probably cannot be answered here, but how can different denominations read the same Bible and come up with different theories on what baptism is? That's a good question. So one of the one of the catches. So if we read, go back to Acts. So when they say, let's see. So in Acts sixteen thirty three, says at the hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his household were baptized. So that's the key verse for some. Sometimes one of the verses that people who are in favor of infant baptism will say. Look, his whole house was baptized. Most likely he had small kids and they were baptized. So they're saying, you know, in other places as well, you'll see them and their household were baptized. So this is a, there's people who believe that position would would point to this and say, this is exactly what's going on. Children are being baptized. And so uh, they will point to something like that and say, well, there's an instance of it. But of course, we don't really know what was going on. It doesn't really speak to who was in the family, how young the kids were, if there were kids. It just says his family was baptized. So it's kind of an argument for silence, but it's it's things like that. It's where it's not, you know, they're kind of arguing from silence. Um, and they're basing entire theologies on it. Yeah, and it, it goes a little bit deeper than that, so they also understand how covenant theology works because your family is part of the, the covenant. It's, you're the new Israel. So when you're, when they, if you're coming from a covenant theology position, your, your, your family, since, according to those who believe that, that position, the church is the new Israel. Now this is, I want to be very careful. We don't believe that here. We're, you know, that's a non-dispensational. This is a covenant theology point of view. So they believe the church is the new Israel. And because of that, because Israel was in a covenant covenant relationship the nation was in a covenant relationship with God mm-hmm. and it, the church has replaced it that means your family now has that same type of relationship so even though like uh, for, for your family and for, maybe Jeremy gets saved and the rest of you guys aren't saved there is some effect that can be had for the rest of his family because you guys are now all included in this covenant so it's it's not just from scripture, but it's also arguing from a theological position, you know, which in some ways is not it's not invalid in and of itself. So you're building a theology based on your position, kind of looking around to the Old Testament. Uh, but of course, there's there's problems with how covenant, you know. So I mean, the biggest one is that the church is the new Israel. So there's that's you know how you look at that. But so it's it's looking at scripture that is kind of unclear. Basing theology on, you know, you, when we talk about the analogy of scripture, so some of you guys should have heard this phrase. You guys, inner city, the guys, the, the girls here that went to inner city probably have heard this phrase, analogy of scripture. Hopefully you guys have. The analogy of scripture is that you interpret the less clear portions of scripture by the more clear. But in, so instead of doing that, what are they saying? They're just actually taking the less clear portions of scripture Combining it with their theological position and then coming out 
to this. So I don't know if that explains. Yeah. It's not a it's not a, a good explanation of, in support of. It's just an explanation of how they arrive at yeah. their position. Yeah, so. I think that was more my question: how they arrive. At yeah. So that's that. it's 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 a combination of le- scripture that is isn't very clear. So they'll look at scriptures like their whole family was baptized because that's there's a couple of place, places in the New Testament where that is said. Their whole family is baptized, and then combining that with the theological their theological background. Mm-hmm. So, good question though. Any other questions or uh, points of clarification? Maybe I said something that didn't ring true that maybe you guys want to clarify or. To get baptized is to like publicly display that you are now a believer in Christ and everything. Correct. And to yeah. like be a step closer with Him. Uh, it's it's a step of obedience. So it's a step that you're saying, I want to follow Christ in obedience. So it's not like, it's not in and of itself making you closer with Christ. It's actually just keeping you in that right relationship with Christ. So it's it's instead of being a disobedient believer and break, and that relationship being broken because of disobedience, it's actually just following him in obedience, being a true disciple. That's when I was talking about Matthew 28 where it says, um, go and make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them. So it's you're a disciple, a true disciple is one who actually then is baptized and then learns about and is taught. So it's it's not so, yeah, but it, it is, like you said, it's, it's just, you know, it's a public confession that you identify with Christ and that you want to follow him in obedience. If that if that is uh, answering your question. Or just making you more uh, confused, I don't know. Can I just clarifying it? Yeah. So, good question. Any other questions or comments? Good question. So, uh, we want to look at the prerequisites. What are the things that need to happen before a person is actually baptized? So we have learned that it's important to obey Christ by being baptized. And that's what I was just touching on. It's important to obey Christ by being baptized. But let's review when it should take place. So Acts 2.41. Acts 2.41. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to that number, to their number that day. So those who accepted his message already were then baptized. So the timing of that. So it says those who accepted his message were baptized. So Acts 8, 5 through 6. So Philip went down to the city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowd heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. So what was Philip doing there? He was preaching, he was evangelizing in that area. So Acts 8.12, it says, continue reading in verse 12. So verse 12 says, But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So the people of Samaria, they what they do with his message, the good news is they believe it. So it says the phrases accepted his message in 2.41, which we read previously, and believed it, that I just read in 8.12, both refers to faith in Christ. 
So the prerequisite for baptism, the first, the, ma- the main prerequisite for baptism is faith in Christ, that you believe in Christ, that you're a, me- a disciple of his. So once again, we see that baptism immediately follows salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. The same sequence is seen in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, and Acts 16, 31 through 33. So we read Matthew 28, 19 through 20. So this perversion of baptism. So this is kind of getting to uh, what we just discussed. So unfortunately, baptism is misunderstood by many people and mistaught by so many religions. Some misunderstand its purpose. Others are mistaken regarding who is to be baptized. Still others err on the mode or the method of baptism. So let's quickly address these three errors. And Strong's quote here is good. So Augustus Strong was a theologian. He writes, he's writing right around the turn of the 20th century. So, you know, a little over 100 years ago. So baptism no more makes one a Christian than putting a crown on one's head makes him a king. So the baptismal regeneration error. Baptismal regeneration, which is, um, as he said, is a mouthful, but its meaning is simple. Some churches teach that a person is not born again, that is, they are not regenerate until they have been baptized. Some even refer to this baptism as the ticket to heaven. The evidence against this teaching is abundant, as stated previously, salvation precedes baptism. So we read 16, Acts 16. I'll read it again. This is again the Philippian, the scene with the Philippian jailer. They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your house. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. So it's after the, and after they were already believers, they were baptized. The infant baptism error. That is, Infant baptism versus what we practice, which is called believer's baptism. So several churches teach that a child must be baptized in order to wash away his original sin. However, Scripture has much to say in opposition to this teaching. First, we have already noted that sins are washed away by Christ's blood, not water. So Christ's blood is the only thing that washes away sin, as we pointed out earlier. Second, as we have repeated time and time again, baptism in Scripture allows always follows salvation. So if a baby is not old enough to understand repentance from sin and faith in Christ, how can they give testimony of salvation through baptism? The baby has not chosen Christ and therefore cannot choose baptism. So the idea that the decision of a parent is somehow credited to or held against a child is absolutely contrary to, to Scripture. So finally, infant baptism is is unnecessary. Many parents fear at their church's insistence that an infant who dies without being baptized is destined for punishment in hell. Yet Scripture's hope for grieving parents is based on God's grace, not a church's water. So that's important. We, We base our hope, the grieving parent, what they would base their hope on is God's grace, unmerited favor from God. Is, is the only thing that we can count on that uh, should give us hope. So this this passage from 2 Samuel 12, 23 says, What statement did the grieving King David make when his baby died just after birth? He says, Now that he is dead, why should I go go on fasting? If you remember, the baby was sick. If, you, if you've read this passage, what's going on is 
David has this affair with uh, Bathsheba, another man's wife. She gets pregnant. The baby's born. Baby immediately gets sick. And David goes in the morning. He goes and starts fasting, praying to the Lord. He had already told, been told that the baby was going was gonna to die as a result. But he goes on fasting and praying. In verse 23, we, we read, Now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? He says, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. So parents can rest assured that their baby is safe even in the event of an untimely death, not because of baptism, not, but because of God's grace. So the evidence is staggering. The Bible <clears throat> never records a single example of a baby being, baby being baptized. So there is a theological, we were just talking about, it's kind of the same thing, it's a theological construct. So you're saying a baby can't be baptized, why? Because a baby can't make a confession of faith. A baby can't make it, doesn't have the wherewithal to recognize the need for sin, the uh, recall out for a savior, and then ask to be baptized to be uh, to follow you know follow the Lord's example or the Lord's uh, instruction there and so there's that's the problem so the mode of baptism error so this is what we were talking about earlier with the sprinkling mode of baptism refers to how someone is baptized some churches believe in sprinkling water on someone's head aspersion or pouring in effusion however the Bible teaches baptism by immersion so the verse the first reason for baptism by immersion is the means, meaning of the word. So baptized come from, comes from the Greek, Greek word baptizo, which means to dip, to immerse. As noted earlier, it was a term used to describe the process of dipping an object completely in liquid. Second, baptism is a picture of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, all of which are symbolized by the immersion. So death to sin, life in Christ. You're buried in Christ's death, and picture of Christ's death raised again out of the water to identify with life in Christ. So a final reason for baptism by immersion is seen in the Bible's record of baptism. So when we see how baptism is performed in, in the New Testament, what we see is that the common wording in the following baptism records. So Matthew uh, 3.16, it says, He went up out of the water. So he came up out of the water there. Mark 1.10, they were baptized in the Jordan. Acts 8.39, they came up out of the water. So this last reason is the weakest of the three. However, the three arguments together, so you bring these three arguments together, are conclusive evidence that immersion is the, the prescribed mode of baptism, which is why we, we practice it that way here is one of the Baptist distinctives that we practice. Biblical baptism is baptism by immersion. Only those who have already repented of sin and trusted Jesus Christ as Savior may participate in it. Hence, we call it believer's baptism. <coughs> any questions on that? Any uh, clarification? Any? So the prepositions, the attendant circumstances, what it's actually picturing, and the meaning of the word or why we or why we immerse. So page 39, looking at the Lord's Supper. The second ordinance of the church is the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, that is communion, breaking of bread. So you depending on your background, where you grew up, 
you know, there's a different variety. There's a variety of words that have been used. They're all interchangeable. As with baptism, many people ignore the clear teaching of Scripture and pervert the Lord's Supper. So we want to be, it's vital that we know what the Bible has to say about it. That's why we, it's important, that's why we took the approach we did with baptism. We want to understand what the Bible is actually teaching, not, not, you know, pushing our meaning into the text, but actually reading out of the text what it says. Like believers' baptism, the Lord's Supper was commanded by the Lord and is a memorial of his sacrificial death on the cross. So Luke 22, 7-20 records the very first observation of the Lord's Supper, Lord's Table. Christ has entered Jerusalem with his disciples just prior to the crucifixion. He had them prepare the Passover meal, which itself was a, a memorial celebrated by the Jews each year. So the Passover goes back to the very first days of Judaism, something God instituted there for the Jews. The Passover was a God-ordained celebration that commemorated the Jews' deliverance from Egypt by the Lord. At the time of the exodus from Egypt, it was 15 centuries before Christ's ministry, each Jewish family had been commanded to sacrifice a Passover lamb in order to avoid the wrath that God sent against Egypt. So Jews to this day still practice the Passover, still keep the Passover Seder. 1,500 years later, Christ entered Jerusalem and died during the Passover celebration. So the symbolism here, as they say, is rich. Christ is the new Passover lamb, slain to, to provide salvation from sin for all who believe. The Old Testament sacrifices were a foreshadowing of Christ's sacrificial death. At the institution of the Lord's table, Christ identified himself as the perfect and final Passover lamb slain to provide deliverance from sin. So it says in John one twenty nine, Christ is called the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. And what does John say Christ is able to do is that he, was, he can take away the sins of the world. So when we call Christ the Passover Lamb, that's what we're talking about. He's the one uh, given to take away the sins of the world. Compare Hebrews 10.4, John 1.7. So Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what can Christ do that Old Testament sacrifices could not? Is that Christ can actually take away sins. If you remember, if, if you're familiar with the Old Testament practice, what was actually going on there, the, the blood of the, the animals only covered sin. It was a covering so that God would basically pass over them so they wouldn't be punished for their sins. Now, with Christ's blood, that actually takes away sins. It removes the sin. So Luke 22, 7 through 20. It's a long passage. Luke 22. Then came the day of unleavened bread, in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. They asked, Where do you want us to prepare it? 
He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. So they left they found, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But at the hand of him who is going to betray me, excuse me, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine at the table. The Son of Man will go as it always has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. So in verse 19, Christ used to represent his body was the bread. That is the Last Supper, the bread there that was broken. The bread that Christ used as in instituting the Lord's Supper was the unleavened bread as the Passover. Leaven is often used as a symbol in Scripture for symbol, excuse me, is often used in Scripture as a symbol for sin. Christ was sinless, a lamb without blemish or defect, as is symbolized by the unleavened bread. So why would Christ's body be given for you? And that is so to pay for our sins. That is, he is his body is the atonement made for sin, made for our sin, the atonement made for our sin. So Jesus instructed the disciples to eat the bread in remembrance of me. What does that mean? What is When he says, do this in remembrance of me, what is he talking about there? It's too warm in here. You guys all get sleepy. So when he says, do this in remembrance of me, he's actually talking about a perpetual commemoration of the act. That is perpetual commemoration of the act, if you're doing this in remembrance of me. So following the bread, Christ used something as a representative of his blood, and that was the cup. So why was Christ's blood so important for our salvation? Because in Hebrews 9.22 it says, Forgiveness of sins requires the shedding of blood. As we talked about with 1 John 1.7. The Apostle Paul used the first Lord's Supper to teach later believers how and why to continue it. 1 Corinthians, in this passage, what it talks about there, as he did with the bread, Christ said that the cup was taken in remembrance of me. He concludes in verse 26 that when we eat the bread... And when drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. The bread and juice are simply symbols that help us remember and show Christ's death. The Lord's Supper is, first of all, a remembrance of Christ's death. However, it is also a reminder of something else. So 1 Corinthians 11.26, what we're looking at there, is that he will return again. 
talks about it's it's what it refers to in First Corinthians eleven twenty six and Luke chapter twenty two is that he will come again. So no wonder the Lord's table table is so precious for Christians. And this is the key thought. It's a memorial of Christ's death for our sins and a reminder that Christ will return to take us with him to be in heaven. So those are two two important things. That it's it's a reminder of the atonement made by Christ for us and that we will be with him again in heaven. <clears throat> so we talk about who should participate now. First Corinthians eleven Paul warns against taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. The Lord is serious about this warning. What are some extreme examples that he discusses there in verse 30? So he says, some are weak, some are sick, and some have even died. Some have even slept. That is, they've uh, suffered death. So we need to be careful to partake the Lord's Supper in a worthy fashion. What, is he, what do we mean when we say worthy fashion? So only Christians should partake of the Lord's Supper. So anyone who has not trusted Jesus Christ as Savior cannot discern the body of Christ. When we, that is, understand, take the supper with understanding and judgment. Christ set this precedent at the institution of the Lord's table. That is, Judas, if you remember Judas the betrayer, Judas Iscariot, departed to betray Jesus before the Lord's Supper and was not present to partake. So the Lord's Supper is for Christians only. We are testifying, in effect, we're testifying to the forgiveness of sins because of the atonement. So if we're doing it because of the atonement, then obviously only Christians who have been recipients of that should participate. Secondly, only Christians who are living obedient lives should partake of the Lord's Supper. And so this is a big one. And this is something Ken hits on pretty hard when we actually do take the ordinances here. We have to be very careful. Are we living obedient lives? One of those things is, have you been baptized already? Because only baptized believers should actually be... This goes back to your question. So, if you're doing baptism, it's actually you're, you're obeying the Lord. So part of doing the Lord's Supper then, is if you haven't been baptized yet, then you're actually be living disobediently. So between the warnings in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, 27, and 29 is a, is a command in 28. And that command is to examine ourselves. And there's a promise also in the verse 31. It says we will avoid judgment. So those who examine themselves will avoid judgment. And he tells this passage, this Psalm 139. It's a good one to read, to think about as you're preparing yourself for the Lord's Supper. We won't uh, spend the time to read it right now. Third, Christians must partake of the Lord's Supper reverently. The Lord's Supper is not something to be taken lightly. Rather, it is a time of worship. Remembering Christ's death. If the Lord's Supper is intended to be a memorial of Christ's death for you, then what should you what should your mind dwell on during the communion service? What should we be thinking about as we're getting ready to take the communion? What are some of the things that Ken talks about or reminds you or some of the things that you've thought about? What are we thinking about when we take the Lord's Supper? Hopefully it's not one of the uh, are they gluten-free crackers or something. Right? <laughs> 
So what we want to be thinking about is the cost of sin. Remember, we're remembering the atonement. We're remembering that Christ's body was broken on our behalf. It had to be broken on our behalf. The sinless Lamb of God was broken on our behalf. So the cost of sin. So that's one of the things. The love and grace of God. So God, who is holy, who doesn't need to forgive us, has given us, has sent his son to die for us. So we can be thinking about the love and the grace of God. And thankfulness is one of those things that we should, uh, that we actually have been uh, brought to the Lord. Have, have received this gift of grace. So Christians should partake of the Lord's Supper in unity. So it's not a private ordinance. This isn't something that you should be doing with just like, uh, you know, people you know, like in a little fellowship, a group of people that maybe you, you hang out with. It's not something you do in a college dorm, in a Christian fellowship at your college. It's not something you do with other believers uh, you know, maybe just some Christian friends you have, maybe you're out traveling and you think, well, let's just do the Lord's Supper. It's not something you do with your family separately. This is something that you, it says in Acts 20, verse 7, that they, the disciples came together. They came together for worship. That is, they're the local church. You, you're doing it amongst God's family. And it talks about the church of Jerusalem providing a good example. So the four things that the Christians were doing there, it says in verse 42, Acts 2.42, that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to fellowship, devoted to the breaking of bread, which is what we're talking about, and prayer, devoted to prayer. And their attitude was one of unity, sharing, one of being with each other. And then finally, baptism, which is practiced only once. We only do baptism once after being saved. The Lord is the Lord's table is repeated. Can somebody read First Corinthians eleven twenty six? So, as we talked about, we're perpetually, it's an ongoing memorial of Christ, till he, that, till Christ's return. Some refer to it as a prophecy. It's like a prophecy of his second coming, but it's an ongoing memorial. We do it, we keep doing it until he comes. So then we've talked about the perversion of baptism. Now we're going to talk about the perversion briefly of the Lord's Supper. It was the means of gaining salvation. So in the same way that some thought it could mean you could gain salvation, but we already talked about salvation comes by grace alone, by, through, uh, by faith alone through grace. The Mass area. It is believed by some that during every observance of the Lord's Supper, which is the Eucharist, this is the Catholic Mass, the Lord is crucified again. This again, as that last line points out, it, deal, it takes into question the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross. First Peter 3.18 says that Christ died once. He suffered once for sins. 
Hebrews 10, it's a good one. This 10 through 12 is that he died. It was suffered once for all. I'll quickly, quick, uh, quickly read that passage. And by that, by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Day after day, every priest stands to perform his religious duties. This is the Old Testament picture. The priest reading over and over. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So, the priest work was unending. It says they did it again and again. In that blank. Verse 12 concludes by saying, Jesus offered all, for all time one sin, excuse me, for all time one sacrifice for sins. And he signifies